the way you should think about this series starting tonight and running through the spring is kind of like kindergarten basketball or kindergarten t-ball or kindergarten whatever you want to call it, right? I've coached my girls in kindergarten basketball. We were going to have kindergarten basketball for Clayton this year. It got canceled, so mercifully that passed. That just means next year first grade basketball will be like kindergarten basketball. When you get a bunch of kindergartners out there, they've never played basketball before, you don't start explaining to them a weave offense. You don't start breaking down the differences between a 1-3-1 zone and a 2-3 zone. They don't even know what a basketball is or which way is which way or what backcourt is or what dribbling is or what double dribble is. Before you can work on any of the skills, you got to explain the rules you got to lay a foundation so that as you begin to build skills and put pieces together in your game, you know what you're actually doing in a game. And that's sort of what we're doing tonight. A lot of the times we jump right into the text and we study a book of the Bible or we study a doctrine in the Bible or something like that. This is a very foundational series. And I don't mean that to say I think you're all kindergartners. I just mean it to say this is a very Build a solid foundation on these issues, and then you'll be able to build a strong, lasting structure on top of what we've built here in this series. So, series is titled The Bible. Tonight we're talking about the doctrine of inspiration. And really, said the whole series is foundational to how we approach God's Word and study God's Word, what we think about God's Word. This one talk tonight is foundational for everything else that we're going to say over the next couple of months, this idea that the Bible is inspired. I think the place to start is by acknowledging that in everyday common language, when we talk about someone or something being inspired, we usually don't mean anything close to what we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired. And so a couple of months back, I was starting to work on this series. I just looked up news stories, right? You can search on Google a word and then click on news and you can pull up news headlines. So I'm going to share with you some news headlines that I found searching for inspiration or inspired. And I'll put some of these up on the screen. Gail Sayers, who wowed NFL fans and inspired a beloved TV movie, dies at 77. His life The story of his life inspired a movie called Brian's Song, right? Inspiration. There was inspiration there. I'll give you another example. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, an inspiration to working mothers. This was a story that was written right when she passed away. Lots of people looked at her life and said, she inspired me in this way. Same word, but it's not really what we're talking about tonight when we say the Bible is inspired. Another example. Inspired by iconic bird, new Long Beach apparel brand is making noise. Apparently on Long Beach, they have wild parakeets everywhere. I've never been to Long Beach, so I've never seen the parakeets. But I guess the parakeets are there, and this guy was inspired by the parakeets, and he started a new clothing brand named Squawk. Squawk. Somebody wrote a news article about this, and they said the parakeets inspired the clothing brand. Take that for what it's worth. Give you a couple other examples. Rick Allen. How many of you know who Rick Allen is? 
He's the drummer for Def Leppard. He was in an accident. He lost an arm. He quit drumming for a while. Uh, but eventually he started drumming again. Rick Allen says fans inspired him to return to drums after accident. People were writing him letters. We miss you playing. We love you. We wish you the best. Those letters inspired him to pick up his sticks again. One more, Hilary Duff writes a kid's book inspired by her daughter Banks, and the book is titled My Brave Little Girl, right? I could go on and on. You get the idea. We use the word inspired or inspirational or that was inspiring all of the time. None of that sort of common usage of that vocabulary word is what we're talking about tonight. So we just got to start by scrubbing all of that sort of thought out of our minds before we jump in and talk about the inspiration of the Bible. The place to begin tonight, this is on your notes, is with the idea of revelation. We'll get to inspiration, but we've got to start with revelation. God has revealed himself to human beings in two ways. There's two ways that God reveals himself to humanity. The first way is general revelation, right? Theologians talk about general revelation, and what they mean is it is available to all people. It is not the unique gift given to any one group of people or any one person, but all people have access to general revelation. And in general revelation, we're talking about creation, and conscience. And so you might think about Psalm 19 that says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Everyone can look up and see the stars and the sunset and the sunrise and the, the sun itself. And you can look at that and you can understand. The psalmist says, and Paul says in Romans, that there's a creator. That's God revealing himself generally to all people. Paul tells the church in Rome that people have a conscience. Even people who don't have God's law have a conscience and they know intuitively that certain things are right and wrong. And Paul connects that to the idea that God has revealed himself in some sense to all people. All people know intuitively that there is a God. Now, we suppress that knowledge. We reject that knowledge. We push back against that knowledge as sinners, but God has generally revealed himself in those ways. Second, special revelation. Special revelation. Not everyone receives special revelation. God's acts in history, the things that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the actual events, is a special manifestation, a special revealing of God's character and of God's glory. All of the nations didn't see that. Many of them ended up hearing about it, but they all weren't there when it happened. Jesus would fall under the category of special revelation. Jesus didn't travel to China. Jesus didn't travel to India. It was a special localized manifestation, a revelation of God to a certain group of people. And Scripture would fall into this category, right? The Bible is God's special revelation. As of today, not every person on the planet has access to the Word of God. Not every person can pick up a copy of God's Word and read it. It's a great missionary task to translate the Bible, to learn new languages, to give people access to the Word of God, but not everyone has read it. Not everyone has access to it. Not everyone can read what God has revealed about himself in these ways. So, Two types of revelation. When you think about these 
two ideas, general revelation and special revelation. It's just worth acknowledging and being honest about the fact that we believe in supernatural things. We are not naturalists. We are not secularists. The naturalists say only what you see in nature is what exists. There is nothing beyond what you can see in nature. There's nothing and there's no one out there. The secularist say all that matters is life here and what we can learn and know here. There is no outside revelation coming. There is no outside knowledge of truth coming. And as Christian people, we reject that. And we just say, no, we believe that there are supernatural things that exist that we can't see. We have faith that there is a God. We can't see him. We have faith that things happened in the past. We weren't there for them, but we believe those things by faith. We believe God has intervened in human history. We believe the creator has actually spoken to his creatures. Not all people believe that. There's a lot of people that think maybe there's a God out there, but he hasn't really said anything directly to us. He doesn't really want to have anything to do with us. There's a lot of people believe there's an energy or a force out there, but it's not personal as if it would want to talk to us. There's a lot of people that believe there is no one or nothing out there. Nothing. We don't believe that. We believe in supernatural things and miraculous things and a creator God who speaks to his people. That begs the question, how does God speak to human beings? We believe in a God who reveals himself. How does he do that? How does he speak to human beings? I'll give you three ways. Number one, sometimes God speaks directly to human beings. And a lot of these references I'm going to let you go back and look at. We're going to dig in in a minute. Some of these you can go back and reference on your own. Sometimes God speaks directly to human beings. You might think of Adam and Eve in the garden. God spoke directly to them. The people that he created were created in his image so that they could have real communication with the creator. He spoke directly to them. You might think of Isaiah 6. This is something that God can still do even though we're sinful people now. Isaiah has this vision of the Lord and he hears the angels singing about God's holiness. What we just sang about earlier, the seraphim and the cherubim singing back and forth. But in Isaiah 6, God speaks to Isaiah. They have a conversation. The holy God and sinful people communicate back and forth. So sometimes God speaks directly to human beings. Secondly, God can speak through human beings. Through human beings. Think about David's affair with Bathsheba. Could God have just showed up and said, David, you're an idiot. Could have. It's not how he chose to do it. He sent Nathan. And Nathan showed up and told the nice little story and then gave the punchline to the story. And he delivered a message from God. That was God speaking through Nathan the prophet. You can think about Isaiah 38. God could have appeared directly to King Hezekiah. He could have spoken directly to Hezekiah. Instead, he said, Isaiah, you go talk to him for me. And when the prophet showed up so many times, they used the famous refrain, thus saith the Lord. I am speaking on God's behalf. This is not just Isaiah talking to you. It's not just Nathan talking to you. This is the Lord God speaking directly to you 
through another human being. Thirdly, God can speak through written revelation, which is what we're talking about tonight, written revelation. When you think about written revelation, the question becomes, what is the relationship in the Bible between God's word and Isaiah's word? What's the relationship between the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John and their words and God's words? How do you fit all of that together? And I like the the humor of B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield says this as you think about theories of inspiration. He says, wherever five, quote, advanced thinkers assemble, at least six theories as to inspiration are likely to be ventilated. And I like that vocabulary, that sort of old vocabulary. But maybe later this week when somebody's blabbering on about something, you can say, you are ventilating too much and you need to put a cork in it. So there's a vocabulary word for you. Inspiration of the Bible. There are lots of different theories about how this took place, about the relationship between God's word and man's word. I'm going to give you three. Okay, we're just going to boil a whole bunch of categories down to three. Number one. Some explain inspiration as dictation. Some say it's like dictation. The best way I can explain this to you is if you were blessed enough to grow up watching Gilligan's Island, and there are two characters on Gilligan's Island, the Howells. And in all the schemes to get off the island, every now and then Thurston Howe would tell Lovey, get your pen and paper and write this down. And he would go on these long rambling things and say all this sort of, you know, elevated fancy language and great ideas. And her job was just to write it down word for word. Some people say that's how the Bible was inspired. God leaned down and he said, hey, Isaiah, grab your pen, start writing. Hey, John, pick up your pen and start writing. Paul, it's dictation time. This is really not, I think, the best way to think about biblical inspiration. This is really more of how uh, Mormons think about the Book of Mormon and how it came to be. It's really closer to how Muslims think about the Quran and how it came to be. There are parts of the Bible, to be very clear, where God told people, write this down. That happens in the Bible. Ten Commandments, God and Moses, God does the writing for him, right? God does the dictating and the writing on the stone, and he says, here it is. You got it. And there's other times in the Bible where God says, this is what you're to write down. But most of the time, that's not how it happened. Like God just boomed out of heaven, and the Bible authors were scribbling down as fast as they could, trying not to get anything wrong. That's not the, the, the best way to think about inspiration. Here's a second theory, enlightenment. Enlightenment. I don't know how much experience you all, cross-section of you all, have had with other churches and denominations and faiths. This is a pretty common theory of inspiration. There would be a lot of people, even in the Bible Belt in Odessa, Texas, if you ask them, do you believe the Bible is inspired? They would say, yes. I believe it is an inspired book, a God-inspired book. They don't mean what I mean when I say the Bible is inspired. And I hope they don't mean what you believe when you say, I believe the Bible is inspired. Because what a lot of these people believe when they say the Bible is inspired, they say it was written by people who were uh, enlightened. 
people who had, they'd had a spiritual light bulb go off. It's almost like God kind of reached down and gave them a little, you know, E.T. finger touch and the glow went off and the light bulb turned on and God said, hey, I want you to, I want you to write a gospel and I've given you this blessing and off John goes to write this gospel pretty much on his own, but he's got a jump start. He's got a kick start. He's got a little power from the get-go to get this thing written. These people would say, look, the, the actual words, no, God didn't dictate things and tell them which word to write. And, you know, John was human, and so in the process of writing, Isaiah was human, Moses was human. They had some mistakes in there. They have some things that aren't quite right. They have some things that we now know are a little bit out of date. But on the whole, it's an inspired book. God was working in these men's lives in some way so that the book that they wrote has now stood the test of time. And we may need to tweak it here and there, but for the most part, this is a pretty good book. It's inspired. What a lot of these people are saying is really no different than the news headlines we talked about earlier, right? Something inspired me to write this, or I, I saw something that inspired me to take a certain course of action. It's not really what we're talking about. This would be, just to be very clear, the view of many mainline Protestant denominations. They would say in their statements of faith, we believe the Bible is inspired, and if you're looking for a church, you look at that and you say, great, my church believed the Bible was inspired. They believe the Bible's inspired. We believe the same thing. No, we don't. What we would hold to is the traditional orthodox position of the church is called verbal plenary inspiration. And that really does not just roll off the tongue. I'll be honest. That's not just the the easiest phrase to come up with or to think through in verbal plenary inspiration. But it's an important theological term that describes what we believe about the Bible and its inspiration. Verbal means we're talking about the actual words in the Bible. We're not just talking about vague ideas and God got them started and they kind of took it and ran with it. We're talking about the actual words, the text of Scripture, right, down to the grammar and the syntax and the structure and all of it is inspired by God. It comes from God. And when we use the word plenary, maybe you've been to a conference and you have breakout sessions and you have plenary sessions. That's where everyone's all in there together. And what we're saying is all of it, all of the Bible, not just parts, not just the John 3.16 and the Psalm 23 parts, the parts that really touch you in the, in the, the, the gut and give you the warm fuzzies, all of it the text of it, the words of it, are inspired by God. So let's just dig in. Let's look at a few passages. Take your Bible. What does the Bible say about its own inspiration? Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. We're going to move through these with a little bit of speed because there's some specific things that I want you to see. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Literally, what Paul tells Timothy is all of Scripture, and on a later Wednesday night, we'll talk about what does that mean, but what he's saying is all of Scripture, all the graphe is the Greek word, is God-spirited. It is God-breathed. It's not so much 
inspired. Some English translations use the word inspired, but it's literally that it comes from God himself. It's as if God breathed it out. It's as if God spoke it out. All of it, Paul tells Timothy, is God breathed. Flip over to the right. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Just a few pages to the right. 2 Peter 1, verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And you can circle that phrase, prophetic word. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, you can circle that phrase, prophecy of Scripture, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy, you can circle that word, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You come to the end and you say, okay, whoa, 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 Peter. What are we talking about when you say men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit? He's given you three terms to describe the same thing, and what he's describing is Scripture. He called it up in verse 19, the prophetic word. He calls it in verse 20, prophecy of Scripture, the graphe, the writings, and in verse 21, he calls it just prophecy. He's talking about the Bible, and we'll get into this in future weeks. He's talking about the Old Testament, and he's talking about some of the New Testament books that have already been written. Peter just lumps all of those in together, and he calls them Scripture, and this is what he says. These things were not produced by the will of man. It's not just that John or Peter or Isaiah or Moses were inspired and they came up with this great book. Here's how it happened, Peter says. Men spoke from God. Men were involved speaking. They did the speaking, the writing. But it was from God and it was all done as if they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the third member of the Trinity is involved in this process of inspiration, carrying these men along as they wrote, carrying them along as they spoke. Look at John chapter 10. Let's think about what Jesus has to say about inspiration. Look at verse 34 and 35. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God. Now look, there's about 8,000 things going on in that passage. We just want to talk about one of them, okay? Here's the one thing that we're trying to talk about in that passage. Look what Jesus says. He says, verse 34, things have been written in your law. And then he quotes the book of Psalms. So he's talking about the scriptures. He's not just talking about the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Torah. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. The law could be a term for all the Old Testament scriptures. It's written in your law. He quotes the book of Psalms. Then in verse 35, he talks about the word of God. Right In that writing, in the law, what the Jewish people had was God's actual word. David wrote it down, but it wasn't just David's word. It was God's word. And then he refers to it in verse 35 in the the little section set apart by dashes. He calls it scripture. Right? Three phrases. It's scripture. It's the word of God. It's in the law. When you read the book of Psalms, 
you weren't just reading a poetry book written by David the Shepherd King. You were reading God's word. It's because God was speaking through David. You see something similar in the Mark and the Matthew reference, but look at Acts 1. Acts 1 makes this so clear. Acts 1, 16. Again, there's a ton of stuff going on here, and we're thinking about just one piece of this verse. Brothers, the Scripture, we've read that word like four or five times now. The Scripture, the writings. The Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke. We've read about the Holy Spirit before back in Peter. Peter said the Holy Spirit was carrying those men along as they spoke, as they wrote Scripture. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And you can go on and read the rest of the passage. You have Scripture. You have David writing the Scripture. And you have the Holy Spirit speaking through the Scripture. All of those things going on together at the same time. One more verse. Acts chapter 4 verse 25. This is a prayer meeting. Acts 4 25. We're jumping in mid-prayer. Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then there's a quote from the Old Testament. You've got scripture, Old Testament. You see it in verse 25 and 26. There's a quote from the scriptures. David is saying something and the Holy Spirit is saying something. The writings in the Old Testament scripture are the words of David and they're the words of the Holy Spirit. So here's how we kind of put all this together. I'll give you a couple of quotes. John Dagg, he has the greatest countenance of any Baptist theologian ever. He said, the men who originally wrote the Holy Scriptures performed the work under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Such was the extent of his influence that the writing, when it came forth from their hands, was said to be given by inspiration. There's our term, inspiration of God. The Holy Spirit is carrying them along. The Holy Spirit is speaking through them. That's what we mean when we talk about inspiration. One more great Baptist theologian, Millard Erickson, by inspiration of Scripture, we mean the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the Scripture writers, which resulted in what they wrote actually being the Word of God. Remember, we said earlier, we believe in supernatural things. We are not naturalists. We are not secularists. We believe there is a God. We believe he relates to human beings. He speaks to human beings. He speaks through human beings. And in the Bible, he has inspired the writers of Scripture. The Holy Spirit has carried those writers along in such a way so that the things that they wrote are God's words. It's fair to say David wrote it. It's also fair to say God wrote it. So that brings us down to this, verbal plenary inspiration. Let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, the inspiration of the Bible involved dual authorship. It wasn't just dictation and somebody wrote it down. David actually thought, how can I write a good poem? Paul actually thought, what do I want to say to this church? What do I want to say to that church? John actually thought, you know, we got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What do I want to write in my gospel? There's personality involved, but God is also the author of the Scriptures. Secondly, inspiration of the Bible does not erase the personalities of the human authors. Moses writes like Moses. He doesn't write like David. He doesn't write like John. John's the best to read in the original language because he writes really easily. 
really simply, just little short sentences, little short thoughts, not a lot of weird vocabulary words. And then you get to Paul, and Paul writes like a lawyer. It just goes on and on and on. You're like, what are you talking about? He writes like Paul. So the personalities come through, okay? Let me give you a few pictures. If I asked these three guys to write a sermon, those are just the first pictures I found on Facebook today, just the first ones I came across. If I asked those three guys to write a sermon, hand write it out on paper, and give me the paper with no name on it, I am reasonably confident I could say, Jake wrote that one, Hunter wrote that one, and Corey wrote that one. Why? It's because I know them, and I know how they talk, and I've been around them enough to know how they think. Their personalities would come through in their writing. That happens in the Bible. You can read the Gospel of John and Revelation, and you say, well, it's kind of the same. Same guy wrote them. Book of Acts and the book of Luke, same guy wrote them. Right? The personalities come through. Number three, the inspiration of the Bible applies to the original manuscripts. Copies of the Bible are not inspired. Every translation of the Bible is not inspired. The King James Version is not inspired. It's a good translation if you speak English in the 1600s. It's fantastic. It's still really good. But if you don't speak English in the 1600s, it's kind of hard to wade through at some points. But not every translation necessarily gets it exactly right. This is so patently obvious, I'll give you one example. In the 1600s, there was a Bible printed in England known as the Wicked Bible. They called it the Wicked Bible because they left the word not out of the seventh commandment. You shall commit adultery. That's how they printed it. The guys who printed it lost their lives and their fortunes and everything, right? It was a big, big deal. You can still buy copies of it. They're floating around out there. It says it right there. Commit adultery. Do it. That's not inspired. Every printing, every copy, every translation is not necessarily inspired. What was inspired were the original manuscripts, and we're going to come back to that in a few weeks. All right, application. We're going to go quick. Why does this matter? Number one, This doctrine influences the way we approach the Bible. If what I'm telling you is true, that these men sat down to write books and the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, was working in them and through them in such a way that the things they wrote are actually God's words. That's what we read in Paul and Peter from Jesus from the apostles. These are actually God's words. You and I ought to approach this book with respect and reverence and humility and thankfulness and teachability and by all means, eagerness. If I told you that you had a child in the military and they're serving overseas and you sent them a letter and a care package and rather than open it, they just stuffed it in their locker, you would say, why would they do that? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't they want to hear from me? Wouldn't they want to see what I sent them? Wouldn't they want to know what I had to say to them? It wouldn't make any sense. That was your loved one. And yet, millions of Christian people take the Word of God and shove it in a locker, shove it in a drawer, shove it in a closet. They don't They don't want to read it. There's no eagerness. 
Like if you actually believe that this book is inspired by God in such a way that that the words of this book are God's words, God speaking, it seems to me it would change the way you approach it in your eagerness to read it. There's a quote there from Boyce. I'll let you read that. Secondly, this doctrine impacts the way we interpret the Bible. When you read something, you always want to know who wrote it. What are they like? Where are they from? What do they believe? When you understand that it's not just John the Apostle or Isaiah the prophet or David the king who wrote this book, it's God Almighty who wrote it, it changes the way that you read it and you interpret it. Gerald Bray is helpful there. One last thought. This doctrine informs our confidence in the Bible. Our confidence. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. He does not lie. He tells the truth. If God really speaks through this book, in this book and through this book, these words are his words, not just human words. It changes the way. It has an impact on the way we trust this book and the confidence we have in this book, which is what we're going to talk about next week. Because the Bible has been inspired, we can be confident of having divine instruction. All of that flows into what we're going to talk about next week when we talk about inerrancy, the absolute truthfulness of the Bible. If it's inspired, it must be inerrant. So we're going to end with prayer, and then we'll uh, head out.